0: Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, the things we talk about that are online on the show will be available on our episode page at JimRuttShow.com i know you all are tired of hearing about it by this point but one more time please when we're done listening today if you could give us a five-star rating on your podcast app we'd appreciate it it's an unfortunate aspect of the podcasting ecosystem that the podcast apps give more visibility to podcasts that have more ratings and better ratings and getting more visibility means we get a bigger audience getting bigger audience means we can attract uh, same kinds of great, interesting guests that we have on the show. So when you're done listening today, please give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. Well, that's enough for shameless pluggery. Let's get started with the show. Uh, Today's guest is Trent Luce, a very interesting fellow who has a podcast slash radio uh, network, kind of an interesting hybrid thing. I appeared on his uh, show, I don't know, a month or a month and a half ago, something like that. And uh, he's uh, he advertises himself, in addition to being a podcaster, a radio man and a journalist, as the husband of a rancher. Now, the truth is, he's actually uh, from a sixth generation ranching family in Nebraska. Welcome, Trent.
1: Thanks, Jim. Uh Yeah, I I, I just want to clarify that because I spent a lot of time traveling the the world actually and have in the last 21 years speaking. I've spoken in six states in the Midwest, the Great Plains of America, since Thursday, the last seven days. And so people always said, well, how big can your ranch actually be? And so I thought I better just tell it straight up. It's just as big as my wife can handle and she can handle Ah. a lot. (laughs) Thanks for the opportunity to be here, though.
0: Yeah, It's great. So why don't you uh, give us a you know, quick uh, overview of your of your operation, your ranching operation, that is, that's what we're going to mostly talk about today. And as uh, uh, listeners to the podcast know, I have a strong interest in local, sustainable and regenerative agriculture. and and yet am not doctrinaire about it. And so I'm looking at various points of view. And so that's what we're mostly going to talk about. But you know me, and if you knew Trent, you'd also know we'll probably wander fairly far afield and talk about other things as well. (laughs) So let's start with uh, describing your operation for us.
1: Well, it started in 1832. (laughs) No, I'm not that old. But the first loose came from Germany to West Central Illinois, actually, Adams County. And I go back that far, Jim, because... You mentioned the word sustainable, and I left Illinois in 1988. It just was not a place that I wanted to raise kids, and my wife is from Sherman County, Nebraska, so we have, we're have we in the process of raising three daughters. We have two that are still in high school. One graduates in two weeks, but I bring up 1832 and my home place at Quincy, Illinois, because my nephew, my sister's son, Grayson Tedrow, is excited about taking over, and he'll be seventh generation on the same <laughs> land that the Looses have been taken care of in Adams County since 1832. So I'm often humored by the people who talk about, well, we need to be become sustainable ag producers. I don't know how you can be more sustainable than being in the same location for 200 years, but we'll, we'll get back to that. Today, Kelly and I, we've, we've done a lot of things. We've owned a lot of animals. In my lifetime, Jim, I've actually cared for 1 million head of animals in 56 years. That's no light feet. We don't have that many today. We have 100 sows. They're all purebred sows. We have 100 cows, and we're part of the certified Piedmontese system with those. And then we have horses. I love my draft horses, but uh, most of our horses are quarter horses. I do have a couple of uh, half-ass horses, which are promptly called mules because I like a mule. It's only half an ass. It's better than a whole ass.
0: Yeah, mules are an interesting animal. I mean, they're uh, sm- oh man, smarter, stronger. Uh, we have quite a few people here in Highland County, Virginia, that uh, that raise mules and they ride them, uh, and they're also pretty good uh, defense animals, particularly for the uh, the mm-hmm. sheep that we have. Which, if you don't defend them, uh, are frankly just prey for the uh, uh, for the bear and the coyotes that uh, which we
1: have in abundance here. I can't talk about uh, predator control when it comes to bears, but we have tons of coyotes, and that's our main predator. Although, we did have goats for quite a period of time, and there was one month that I lost 25 goats to a mountain lion, and uh, so that caused me to sit out with my uh, 257 Weatherby several nights and finally got a shot at that thing, but he didn't come back after that, even though I didn't hit him.
0: Yeah, we don't have uh, mountain lions here, though there's legend of them, though I've noticed they're More like UFOs when one person claims they've seen one. (laughs) uh, An unlikely number of people soon thereafter claim to see them. Exactly. Yeah, you know, the story I usually ask is, how many bobcats have you seen in your life? Uh, and the answer is usually zero. And our area has plenty of bobcats, but you know cats, you don't see them too often, right? Yeah, 30 years on my farm, I've seen one. And that was from a deer stand uh, he trotted by along a creek, didn't know I was there. And I said, uh, if you've never seen a bobcat, your chances of having seen a, a, a panther or a mountain lion is uh, a factor of 100 less than that. So come on, guys.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, I my best steed is uh, Lady Blue. Uh, Lady Blue's now 20 plus years old, but she was the first horse that I started myself. And I've ridden her all across this country, even in parades and different things. But she's pretty much just a great ranch horse. And one day we were riding in this little canyon at our place in central Nebraska. She just wasn't being herself. I just I could tell there's something was wrong and it wasn't long. And it's amazing how they have that just sense about them, you know, because they're so in tune with their environment and everything around them. They don't read Snapchat and Facebook. So it's all good, Jim. These horses are still in tune with the nature instead of the electronic world. And it wasn't long. And I saw a little bobcat dart. And so she just had that sense that it was there. Um,
0: they're smart uh yeah they have they have that you know they may not be able to you know split the atom or write a shakespearean sonnet (laughs) uh but when it comes to being finely tuned by my nature to live in the world they live in uh they good
1: if your chin is an atom they can split it pretty good because you can't probably see it but there's a scar right here that took about 27 stitches to fix up that was a horse wreck as well Oh dear, uh, it can it, it can happen. Well, let's get back
0: to you know focus a little bit on uh, agriculture and you know uh, and what you all do uh, with your sows and your cows. Uh, we talked a little bit uh, on your show on uh, you know the fact that uh, pork in particular is an interest of mine. In fact, uh, when my wife uh, is putting together her online order here in the COVID season, she say "Jim, what uh, anything anything else we need?" I always say. How much pork you ordering, right? I'm, uh, I, like, I like my <laughs> pork in, the, in various forms. And uh, she always says, damn it, we got a whole freezer full of pork. And I go, okay, well, as soon as we start to uh, open up a little space, make sure we order some more. So and we talked about how pathetic uh, industrialized uh, pork had become in the U.S. Uh, over a long period of time. And there's a, you know, there's a growing movement back towards uh, more interesting breeds. So what are you all doing with pork production? What makes your lines interesting?
1: So I, I mentioned that all of our pigs are purebreds. And uh, for the most part, I'm a, a purebred spotted swine guy. Uh, I've had spots since I was 10 years old. And I just really enjoy the, the breeding aspect of those. And, and I've got a boar right now that's just the cat's meow. In my mind of what we need to be doing in the pig business for generating profitable, high quality eating pork. And I call him Beaver Moon because I named him, you know, each each full moon has a name, and I named him in November a couple of years ago in the Beaver Moon. So I thought, that's just a perfect name because he's, he's out there harvesting the fur and the, what created the whole opportunity to develop the West. So Beaver Moon has become that boar, and we look at the genomics. We actually use an outfit called Neogen to uh, send in uh, tissue samples to look at what ge- uh, alleles are present in these boars so that we can evaluate meat quality, we can evaluate performance and efficiency and all of those profitability traits that is all about sustainability and producing more with less. So uh, aside from the spots, and that, that's our primary focus in our branded program called the spotted boar, uh, we have Berkshire. Berkshires have long been known as a high quality meat item and, and kind of set to standard, to be honest, if, if I want to be frank, uh, because it, it dates back to the queen of England and the queen loved Berkshires. Interesting little side note, Jim, is that all 10, of the major breeds that are available today in the United States, all trace back to a Berkshire. So they all started with the Berkshire and then they were developed. Half of those are developed in the United States. The other half primarily developed in England with uh, the land race being developed in the Netherlands. But our program is primarily spot. We have uh, a few Berkshires, and then I have two Hampshires, two Herefords. Um, Herefords are interesting, and I have two uh, Yorkshire. So that's what our breed makeup is at our place,
0: and you do all purebred as opposed to hybrids. Here,
1: I do. I do only purebreds. I just I've always been a purebred enthusiast. I like the the genetic aspect of it, looking at the lines, and I can trace everything back to whatever sow might be in the background for what trait that I'm trying to make. And all of my pigs today go back to one sow that actually I had in 1984. Oh, excuse me, 1987. I had that sow 38-2. And the interesting part of that is that I got out of the pig business ourselves for about a four-year period of time. And yet within the spotted breed, there were still people, quite a few people that had lineage that went back to that original radial daughter. Her name is Lowboy38-2. Days There are so many people in the spotted breed that still had spotted genetics that went back to her. I was easily to go in and find a couple of foundation females to start all over again, but they all go back to that original sow that I had that I made that I thought was so good in 1987.
0: Cool, that's an interesting story. And uh, you know, we talked about a little bit uh, on your show, uh, breeding is kind of a multi-dimensional problem, right? You're not just trying to optimize one thing. Uh, you know, you're, you're optimizing on one side for the quality of the product aimed at a at a specific market. You're obviously also optimizing around uh, efficiency and converting food to, you know, inputs to uh, to meat, uh, tractability, disease resistance, all those things. How, what's your model of uh, what you're trying to do in these in these various dimensions?
1: So. It's all of the above, to answer your question. But the first model, the first parameter that we look at is, are they good females? Do they breed easy? Do they lay down feral pigs on their own um, and then raise those pigs and breed back? If they don't do those things, they're gone. You just have to move on and and select the lines that consistently do that. Beyond that, uh, in today's world with the lines that I'm working with within a spotted breed and a Berkshire breed, The feed consumption and growth has been a little bit more of a problem than it was back in the day of the 80s and 90s because we were just selecting pigs that grew so fast. Today, we want that combination of pigs that have a high volume of feed consumption. The only way you grow fast is to eat a lot of feed and then combine that with the right amount of marbling and fat so that it tastes good. You mentioned the pigs in the commercial setting, and I've been involved with a lot of pigs in that commercial setting as well. Uh, but the mistake that we made was that we developed this marketing campaign in the mid-80s, and we called it Pork the Other White Meat. And we started selecting pigs, and we felt pressure from the consumer to make these pigs leaner, leaner, leaner. Well, that was okay for the bellies because you made bellies a little leaner, but they were still 50% fat, and and so they tasted okay as you made bacon, cured bacon. But the pork loins, they're just they're just not good. They're like a chicken breast. Chicken breast is only good when you flavor it with something else. And so pork loins got into the same position. And we, we moved down this path so far thinking that we needed to focus on leanness, that we lost that, that taste and uh, satisfied eating experience that you alluded to earlier. And so I wanted to incorporate the positive aspects that the Berkshire brings, and I identified those lines within the spot breed. And today, if you look at the gen- genomic data, on our spot bores, they will be as good as or better than all of the Burke bores that we use to make more as we go forward. So it's a combination. I really focus on maternal. Beyond the maternal, we look at what does that taste like? And and I've been in the grocery store and I've stood by people who will be at the meat counter and they'll select pork chops that look leaner and look lighter in color when in fact the darker pork is better because it, it, it has a higher level of pH. And pH is what retains that moisture within the muscle fiber itself. And when you're cooking it, you can actually overcook it and still have a, an eating a good eating experience. The biggest one problem with pork throughout the course of history, and my mother, uh, my mother is just a, an angel. She's been an awesome mother. She still overcooks her pork. And we overcook that pork, and then we can't figure why it doesn't taste as good. So when you have a a darker pork chop, a darker loin, a darker meat fiber, it means that there's a higher level. It's no different than chicken, actually. You can, you know, at, at family events, people fight over the chicken breast.
0: I like the thigh. I always go for the thigh.
1: The thigh is absolutely the best tasting part of the chicken, and it's a darker meat, and that it's darker because it has a higher level of pH, it retains its moisture better through cooking, and it's a more enjoyable eating experience. So we're bringing that same concept into pork production.
0: It's funny you mentioned the thigh. My wife, who's a brilliant uh, person in many domains, she's identified uh, the best food value in America, uh, which is turkey thighs. Uh, they can't literally give them away. They're like, I know, tw- 29 cents a pound in bulk. And she makes stews and soups and all this with turkey thighs. And this is amazingly delicious uh, meat. At, uh, you know, literally, uh, it, they sell it for only slightly more than it would cost them to dispose of it. Uh, it's ridiculous. And so you want to, if you're tight on a buck, go to your local meat man and tell him you'd like to buy a 50 pound box of turkey thighs and you'll have some really good eating for next to no money at all. True story. And I'm definitely a fried chicken. Uh, yeah, let everybody else fight over the drumsticks and the breasts. I'm always going for the thighs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, interesting. The, um, so, yeah, I, I hadn't thought about the fact that the maternal uh, ability is really important in the breeding, because obviously, you know, that's the gateway through which the next generation arises. And so that, that makes a heck of a lot of sense. Uh, how much higher uh, marbled fat content uh, do your animals have over, say, uh, you know, pork chops at, uh, at Walmart.
1: I don't have a, a number to quantify it, but they're statistically significantly higher in intramuscular fat. And, and that's something that just really hasn't been evaluated. Nobody even talked about that, gym in pork production until the last few years. And, and the type of production that you're talking about here today and what we've been doing is what has brought that back to the forefront. Now, there were some high demand markets for uh, Japan, where they were looking at, and, and I've been in a plant in Sioux Center, Iowa, where they were doing Minolta scores and looking at what was really going on with pH and marbling even 25 years ago, but it didn't really catch on. And it's hard to measure. The, the reason that nobody in the pork business really talks about marbling, even in the cattle business, is still done with an individual USDA grader standing on that line, taking a chart, look, putting it up here and saying, yep, this is USDA choice it's really hard to capture that data. And that's why it's not been of a great emphasis. Interesting.
0: Uh, Just a question just came to me. Uh, You're a German rut. That's also a German name. Uh, Have you ever been to Germany? They got the best goddamn pork over there. Uh, Any idea what
1: they're doing? (laughs) No. No, I have not been to Germany. I like to pick on Germany a lot. And I like to remind people why my ancestors left Germany, but I've not been there myself. My brother went, but I, I, I'm really good on my own family tree until 1832. And before they got off of that ship, uh, that's my ignorance. I need to fix that.
0: Yeah, truthfully, I don't have any idea where they came from either other than I know they were – uh, Mennonites, uh, Anabaptists fleeing persecution. I think actually more accurately dodging the draft uh, and they came <laughs> from somewhere in Southern Germany. That's all I know. But I can tell you, if you ever get over to Germany, uh, particularly uh, Berlin or Frankfurt or, or uh, uh, Munich, uh, go for the pig knuckle, uh, which oh, is a yeah. big old chunk of meat. I mean, uh, you know, pig knuckle, you know, two or three liters of uh, dark German beer uh you know it doesn't get much better than that and you know all the pork is so marbled and it's darker as you say it almost looks like cured ham uh it's uh it's just it's just fantastic you know talking about uh you know the not non other white mean the other extreme one of our neighbors and friend of ours is a guy named joel salatin who's a very well known Mm, i know joel yeah, he's a great guy. It's an interesting character. It's a true character, right? And, uh, he does a small amount of pork. He mostly focuses on beef and cattle and he does his pork in a real old fashioned way, which is he raises them in the woods, mm-hmm. puts them out for the acorns and to root around for tubers and, uh, and this, that, and the other thing. And, uh, it, uh, it, you know, th- th- I would not say it's uh, highly tender because these guys are rooting around in the mountains, uh, but the meat is really, really dark and extremely flavorful. Very interesting. So, you know, getting people off thinking that they're looking for the whitest, palest uh, pork is probably the first thing we need to do if we're going to you know, reshape the American uh, palate uh, for the really good product.
1: Yeah, I, I'm familiar with that. It's it's really tough to be uh, if as efficient, and so that product has to be worth a lot more to make it worth it. And people are willing to pay. I've had some of that uh, even four hundred dollar a pound stuff that comes out of Spain. It's just a different world to me. You know, that's that's nuts. Iberico Iberico hams.
0: Yeah, those things are crazy. Or Parma hams. Uh, those are right. also about, from uh, Northern Italy. Uh, the you know, finished on chestnuts in the mountains. In fact, here in in the mountains of Virginia, where we are, before the great uh, ch- chestnut blight, our mountains were about fifty percent chestnut. And traditionally, mm-hmm. the uh, local subsistence farmers uh, let their pigs loose in the mountains for the for the fall, and they gorged on. Uh, uh, chestnuts. And then they were slaughtered in, uh, slaughtered at home by hand in, uh, in in kind of mid November typically. And they were good and fat from rooting up all those, uh, eating all those chestnuts. Uh, But you know, again, as you say, it's not really a scalable means of production and Joel's pork while, while very interesting and good is about three times the price of grocery store pork. So it's not a mass item. It's a, it's an elite food fancier item. And and really, if we're going to solve our food systems, uh, issues and move them to a sustainable future. Uh, I always tell people, you know, if your model won't yield something on the order of no more than 25% more than Walmart, uh, it's probably not scalable.
1: The other aspect that people tend to forget about is that pigs are very destructive. And, you know, just in Texas alone, pigs destroy wild pigs. I'm talking about feral hogs destroy $70 million worth of food crops each year. And so I actually have some hills that as a kid, my father, my dad, uh, my grandfather we would feed a lot of pigs in that area. that that those hills today are nobody would call them plush, let me tell you they're very destructive. Boy,
0: they can tear it up. I
1: mean, uh, even Joel Joel
0: Salton's places, he fences them off with electric fences, and he only leaves the pigs in there for a few days. Because if you leave them right. in there for long, they'll just destroy it. On the other hand, if you put them in there just for a few days, uh, they'll eat up you know all, their, all your poison ivy, all your greenbrier, all your uh, obnoxious stuff. You know, pig isn't too, uh, isn't too picky on what he eats, right? He'll 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 uh, clear out all kinds of crap.
1: Actually, the best story I've heard along those lines is a, a gentleman from Oklahoma whose grandfather. You know, today, by the way, is a significant day because it was today in 1889 that the Oklahoma land rush began. Yeah. And 50,000 people were living in tents on the edge of what's today known as Oklahoma. And when uh, Benjamin Harrison said, okay, we're going to do a claim, stake your claim, 50,000 people ran in there. Well, one of those guys ran in there. He ended up with a quarter section of land and it was loaded with rattlesnakes. And so I talked to, I think it would be his fourth generation from that fourth generation grandson, and he said, Grandpa got his his claim in the land rush. He then went to Nebraska, bought 300 hogs, which were mostly all females. He trailed them. Think about this now, 1990, 1890. He trailed them from Nebraska to Oklahoma because he wanted to get the hogs to take care of the rattlesnakes. And the hogs went out there and they literally decimated the rattlesnake population and he turned it into a productive farm thanks to a pig.
0: I love it. I love talk, It's interesting <laughs> interesting, just an aside. Trailing, trailing animals. You know, here in Highland County, we we were fortunate enough to uh, become befriend an old really old bachelor a uh, character who had grown up here on the farm, gone off to the city, and worked as an electrician, and then retired back to the family home place. Mm-hmm. And he would be over a hundred now. But uh, when we were talking to him uh, one time, he was telling us when he was a kid, about thirteen years old, uh, on the family farm. Uh, every fall, they trailed their large flock of turkeys from here in oh, uh, my goodness in the Bullpasture Valley uh, to Stanton, Virginia, which is our market town, it's about 40 40 miles away by road, uh, on foot, uh, basically, uh, over three mountain ranges. And he said, yeah, oh, yeah, that's just what we did. It took like two and a half days. And, uh, you know, we'd uh, just sort of camp out as we went. And the turkeys would roost up in the trees. This is before turkeys got to be too fat to fly. And, uh, yeah, we'd lose maybe 5% of them. They would either run off or uh, get eaten by, uh, you know, uh, there were no coyotes in those days, get eaten by something. Uh, but said, oh yeah, that was just a routine part of life is that we, uh, by foot on foot walked our herd of turkeys from McDowell, Virginia to, uh, Stanton, Virginia over, you know, two and a half day period. Amazing those, how tough those people were.
1: My favorite era of history is the cattle drive era. Six million head of cattle trail from Texas to the great plain, uh, northern great plains around Abilene, Kansas. And uh, that's a 12-year period of time. That's, if I could time travel, that's when I want to go. And I've trailed cattle. I've trailed horses, which is a big trick to actually pull that off. But I just can't imagine trailing turkeys or pigs. That, that just <laughs> seems beyond my scope. That's amazing. So let's I talk a little bit more about your uh,
0: business model with your, uh, with your sows. Are, do you sell strictly breeding stock or do you also uh, sell into the product channels?
1: So we do all of the above. Uh, we, uh, like I said, we have 100 sows, mostly again, purebred spot, uh, Jim, for quite some time, we've been selling gilts to young people, particularly 4 H or FFA kids who want a project, but then they also want to raise those pigs and, and show them at competition. And so the show pig world is something that we've been in and we are still a part of, but I really do that through the m- maternal side Uh, In fact, I've I've been asked and we'll be judging the Maryland State Fair pig show uh, Labor Day weekend uh, coming up this fall. But uh, our main focus has always been the maternal. We do sell some barrows to kids for show pigs. I sell quite a few boars to other people who are into what we would call the heritage uh, business. And then we have been selling roughly 40 pigs a month to people directly as a meat program in the meat program. And we have two avenues for doing that. We have four uh, custom-exempt lockers that we sell people, their pigs. We then deliver them to the locker for them, and they have them cut, and they will buy either half or holes. And the other thing that we've been doing, and I I just briefly mentioned the, uh, the spotted boar, which is a partnership between ourselves and Lone Creek Cattle Company, believe it or not, out of Lincoln, Nebraska. And they are uh, doing a a retail program and they have a shop in Lincoln, they have a restaurant in Lincoln, and they have an online presence. And so we're into every single aspect of pig selling, whether it be in the form of uh, direct to the consumer, the retail outlets, or to those kids that want to be a part of a small 4-H or FFA junior livestock project.
0: Yeah, we, uh, until COVID, uh, we for years have been buying uh, a pig at the. Local county fair, you know, five times the market price is typically what it would go for in the auction. But it's you know for the kids,
1: you're not buying a pig, you're investing in the kids. Yeah, you're, pu- you're putting
0: money into a kid's uh, scholarship fund, exactly. Uh, uh, but you're also getting a, a mighty fine uh, 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 animal. Also, I typically, you know, we typically would pick one that's in like the 250 pound range. We found that's a sure. size, and and also, also truthfully, we'd often uh, buy the pig of you know people we knew and things like that. So uh, yeah, it's you know if you're living in a rural area, support. Those uh, FFA uh, 4-H uh, uh, fairs and the people is really a wonderful thing to do. I've always we always felt very good about that as an activity. Uh, and as uh, Trent says, no, you're not buying pork at uh, you know ten dollars a pound or more than that. Uh, you're investing in a kid who showed the perseverance and character to be able to do a hard thing and do it well. So. Uh, encourage people to go and bid at those animal auctions at your local county or I don't know if they do that state fair it's been a long time since I went to a state fair Uh,
1: some state fairs do Jim Uh, not all do but some still do some have really good auctions cool
0: Uh, all right we talked we talked uh, about your uh, oh one last thing on pork uh the slaughter do you guys have a local custom slaughter facility small scale slaughter that's a that used to be still actually that still Mm -hmm. is a limiting factor in the local meat production scene here we're fortunate enough to have our own local slaughterhouse uh but uh you know the backlog at small scale slaughter in this region is like a year currently
1: this is a great discussion because i mentioned that we go to we go to five different plants on a monthly basis uh, four of those are custom exempt. And what that means is that there's not a USDA inspection. Uh, they are uh, beholden to the USDA, but there's not an inspector there because there's no retail product sold out of that particular place. Uh, we do not have a state inspection program in Nebraska. Any Nebraska butcher shop that wants a, an inspection program for retail sales has to go through a USDA inspected plant. We go to Wahoo, Nebraska for that. It's a tremendous plant, family-owned. It is uh, strategically placed the same distance from Lincoln as it is from Omaha. And Charlie and his crew there in in Wahoo do a fabulous job. Uh, So we go into that plant for uh, anything that goes through the retail program. The pigs that we sell direct, we go to four custom exempts. Now, there's been a lot of talk and and trying to find a way to incentivize more of that type of a a structure because that infrastructure, as you mentioned, has really been crippled. Uh, The the limiting factor, to be honest, is you go talk to any of the the butcher shops that I work with on a a monthly basis, and they would tell you that the demand is there from the customer to expand, but we can't find people to work in what we have. And just to keep up with what we're currently doing is the challenge. So many times the limiting factor, it comes back to labor and finding people willing to show up and, and be a part of the meat cutting business is not always easy.
0: Yeah. And that's been a constant challenge at our local facility as well. Fortunately, uh, over the line in West Virginia, uh, there's a vocational high school that has a meat cutting plan uh, program. Uh, and that has been a major source of, uh, of labor for you know, people who graduate from that uh, West Virginia
1: vote. Is that Hampshire High School?
0: It could be Hampshire. No, no. Hampshire, Hampshire is a long way from where we are. That's
1: up. In well, the I, uh, Isaac Lewis is uh, the FFA instructor at Hampshire High School. And uh, what's the town? It's a, Hampshire's the county. But anyway, they did, they did the same thing. They have a little butcher shop in their high school and they're teaching kids. That's a fabulous program. I'm really glad to hear there's more than just one of those. Yeah. Hampshire is up in the
0: rich part of West Virginia uh, what they call the Gold Coast uh, up near DC and uh, where we used to live. Uh, We lived in the Virginia side of that line. Now we live down in real rural Appalachia Uh, and the the local (laughs) high school across the line uh, in West by God uh, does offer a meat cutting program. It produces, uh, you know, some good, good people. So that's helped the labor problem, but labor is a problem everywhere. Right. And of course, unfortunately there's a bigger picture uh, problem, uh, which is, you know, how do I say this in a way that's not uh, just too just <laughs> which is uh, Americans are paying too little for their food. Uh, you know, if you look at the percentage of our wallets that have gone to food uh, and the price of food versus everything else in our lives, uh, hell, the price of, uh, of wheat uh, is not much higher in nominal dollars than it was when I was a kid, right? Mm. Uh, and if somehow we got to learn to be willing to spend a little bit more on our food, uh, everybody in the production chain uh, could uh, could make a decent living. Cutting meat is a hard job, right? It is a really tough way to make a living. And you know if you're getting paid 12 or $13 an hour, uh, you know, uh, it's tough. And, uh, you know, if you could make $18 an hour, uh, people would be beating uh, on the doors going to work there. But the, the you know, sort of the emergent economics of the race to the bottom uh, dynamics of late stage financialized capitalism make it essentially impossible for any produ- uh, producing uh, meat slaughter operation to pay more than 11, 12, $13 an hour and survive. Uh, and so this race to the bottom dynamics, uh, makes everything just barely function. And there's a perfect example of the fact that you can't get, I mean, you get labor, but they won't show up. They'll be right. high on drugs. They'll be, uh, uh, psychopaths who don't take direction. Well, uh, and so if we were able to pay people, uh, a better wage, uh, then all these problems, uh, Uh, would start to resolve. But the uh, the reality would be we'd have to put a bigger share of our wallet on food and a smaller share of our wallet on fancy haircuts and, uh, you know, shiny BMWs and things of that sort. So
1: 2020 uh, has shined a light on a lot of things, one of which is that we were spending, and this is all pre-COVID now, we're spending about 8.5% of our disposable income on food. The average American spends 16% of their disposable income on entertainment. And and so until we started getting some wake-up calls through uh, bottlenecks and other terms that we used in the the destruction of our, or the, really not the destruction, the illumination of the challenge that we have in our just-in-time food system, people were taking it for granted. And when you spend twice as much to go watch a movie as you spend on your food, You ought to take a step back and say, hey, what do I really need to be focused on here? What's really important?
0: Yep, absolutely. And uh, when I was a kid, the general rule of thumb was, uh, I'm an old, I'm an old sucker, right? So when I was a kid, was back back, you know, we had just invented fire back then, right? Uh, Didn't and, even
1: have shoes then, did you, Jim?
0: Oh, shoes! Oh, what would you need those for, right? You know, <laughs> we, we always walked barefoot both ways to school, and it was uphill both ways, you know, back yeah. in the day. Stepping on uh, acorns
1: that the hogs hadn't eaten yet.
0: Exactly. <laughs> right. Uh, in those days, the rule of thumb was a uh, family should uh, allocate about 25% of its budget for food. Right. And that was when, you know, if we went out to a restaurant three times in a year, that was because we had a really good year, right? Uh, nobody went out to uh, McDonald's for lunch. Are you kidding me? Right? We no, couldn't afford that. Uh, and uh, and so back in those days when it was almost all home cooked food, uh, generally, the you know, the, again, the rule of thumb was 25% of your budget went for food. Uh, if it's today, 8%, uh, that's uh, that's a big that's a big number big
1: change. And put this in context: at the time when twenty five percent of the disposable income was going to food, the farmer received roughly seventy five percent of the consumer's food dollar. Today at 8.5% of the, uh, the total disposable income going to food. Last year, the farmer received 17% of the consumer's food dollar. So every loaf of bread that you buy, the farmer only gets 17 cents of every dollar. Which is, w- which is the reason why
0: uh, we here locally involved in the local food movement are all about collapsing the value chain. Right. Uh, you know, uh, get all those intermediating people who are, tr- frankly, subtracting value in many cases, not necessarily adding value uh, out. Right. Let the farmer sell directly to the consumer. Right. And, uh, the, you know, the farmer at that point is, uh, let's see, i let me run the numbers in my head. He's capturing about uh, even if you hire a third party logistics, the farmer's still capturing 60, 65 percent of the economics.
1: And the challenge with that is, as wonderful as that sounds, and Kelly and I have dabbled in this now for 30 years, it takes a different person to raise a critter than selling the critter to the consumer. And with our German heritage, we're better at working and getting our hands dirty than we are doing customer service. And so that's been the limiting factor for most farmers, quite frankly, is that they get frustrated with the customer service aspect and just want to go take care of the cows. Uh, We understand
0: that very well because we've interviewed 50 farmers, uh, producers, as we call them, Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what we hear ubiquitously. And that's why, uh, you know, we've encouraged our local processing plants to get into the marketing side and the distribution uh, for people for 15 cents on the dollar. They can afford to do that. Sure. And that's what I was assuming: fifteen percent for logistics and distribution, uh, you know, another fifteen percent or so for slaughter, and uh, a little bit more, depending on the animal. Uh, and that leaves sixty-five percent uh, for the producer. Even him not having to, you know, get their fingers dirty or not, not your fingers dirty, but your head annoyed really? uh, dealing with the marketing and customer service side. And you know, we, my wife and I, the people we work with, uh, believe that that is the future. Because uh, there are some people uh, who have ag backgrounds who are interested in the customer service and uh, uh, marketing side. In fact, locally we have a group that's created what we call a super CSA, community supported agriculture. Oh, sure. A lot of which is most of which traditionally has come from one farm. But what the the super CSA idea is it's an alliance between say ten farms. And one of the uh, producers uh, re- does less work in production than they used to do because they're interested in and have some skill at. Uh, the distribution side and they basically aggregate uh, the product from 10 different producers and offer typically multiple bundle CSA so it's not just all right we got all the kale you produce this uh, uh, this uh, this week uh, but rather you can pick and choose I want a protein heavy uh, slice I want a, a, a vegetarian slice I want a uh, you know dairy and egg uh, plus uh vegetables. Uh, and the and then the the, the Super CSA uh, blends the product from the 10 participating farms. Really an interesting idea to get around that problem. Because you know, truthfully, at least nine out of 10 producers, they don't want to deal with damn customers, people showing no. up at their farm or anything else. And the Super CSA is a way to collapse the value chain uh, and still have that uh, you know, 60, 65% of the dollars going into the producer's pocket. And most producers not happen to do the stuff they ain't good at.
1: Yeah, that's a, that seems like a tremendous workable solution. And you take a producer who's, say, 50-plus years old, been doing this his whole life. He's not going to go in and learn how to be a customer service-oriented individual. He's that's not realistic.
0: Yeah, we, He you figured know. out how
1: to load market hogs with his wife, but he hasn't figured out how to work with his wife to sell a, a pork chop yet. So there's a difference.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. All
1: right, we talked about pork. We talked about business
0: models. Let's talk about cows a little bit. Uh, what do you do in your cow operation?
1: So what we have done at one time, we had 300 uh, purebred limousine cattle, and we were doing kind of the same thing with our limousines and and selling breeding stock. We never really did much with the retail side because it's a whole different animal to sell an entire beef as opposed to a pig. And so we we got along with that pretty good. And I started spending more time on the road. And now we come back to the the rancher is my wife. And Uh, we were just scattered a little too thin. So what we did is that we are now part of the certified Piedmontese system. We still have a tremendous limousine cow base, but we use the Piedmontese bulls from the same outfit that we work with on the pork side at Lone Creek Cattle Company in Nebraska. And it's more of a regional style, Great Plains of America direct marketing program. And while we talked about intramuscular fat, on the pork side of the equation, the Piedmontese cattle do not have intramuscular fat. And that kind of throws everybody haywire because the whole beef industry has been structured around intramuscular fat. And the U.S. advantage in the global marketplace in the beef business is intramuscular fat. But what we focus on with these Piedmontese cattle is the tenderness aspect. And every one of the Piedmontese bulls that we use possess two copies of the myostatin gene, which is a gene that uh, typically regulates uh, the muscle growth in an animal, but these are mutant myostatin genes, which means that the the muscle grows, and a lot of people refer to them as double-muscled cattle, but the aspect that people pay for and they want is that every single time that that myostatin gene is present, the tenderness aspect is going to be the number one driver, and so the certified Piedmontese system that we feed our our cattle into is all about tenderness. And if you look at a lot of consumer panels through the years, we, marbling gives you the flavor. Tenderness gives you the satisfied eating experience because, quite frankly, it's just more tender. That's what it comes back to. And so we're proud to be a part of that system. We breed our cows, again, which have a, a, a limousine component to the Piedmontese bulls. And then we put both the steers and heifers in a terminal program into that certified Piedmontese system and they sell that retail and again through that shop in Lincoln, Nebraska. That system, Jim, uh, in, 2020, in 2020 had 25,000 head of cattle with Great Plains producers supplying into and it's, it. It kind of comes back to more of that regional approach because the cattle are all in the Great Plains and the marketing does take place via the internet, but uh, it's really more of a regional approach to the future of the food system. I like that. Uh,
0: I like that. Now, Are these uh, uh, grain finished or are these uh, uh, grass fed or hybrid between the two?
1: So there's both options. Uh, if on the marketing side, uh, the, the largest growth area, even though it's not still significant in the bigger picture, the largest growth area has been grass fed. And uh, Lone Creek is actually building one system in York County, Nebraska, that's 100% tailored to grass finished beef. They also have cattle that come through more of a traditional sense, and they are grain-fed. So both are available as an option.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of interest here in our region. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of production of grass-fed. But I got to tell you, a lot of the product's terrible. I mean, you better have your yeah. stainless steel dentures on, uh, on some of these suckers, at least for uh, you know, dry-cooked cuts like uh, steaks and such. On the other hand, there are people who are getting good at it. Uh, one breed that uh, is used locally is our Belted Galloway. Sure, which is a, a Scottish uh, mountain breed uh, that uh, uh, produces a pretty nice product.
1: Who, who doesn't want to eat an Oreo? <laughs>
0: and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and uh, one of our friends who's a producer has been experimenting in a minor way uh, with uh, grass-fed, but different grass-fed, uh, that includes some high-energy uh, grass that were legally defined as grasses, including field peas and one particular variety of sorghum, which has been deemed a grass rather than a grain. And uh, he's been experimenting and has been producing some very interesting product that uh, kind of uh, had some of the aspects of grain fed and some of the aspects of, uh, uh, of grass fed, including, you know, the high omega-3 ratios and things mm-hmm. of that sort.
1: I have a, a, a friend that uh, was one of the pioneers in the grass-fed beef market, John Wood from Monticello, Missouri. And uh, he weathered some of the initial storms because there was people that wanted grass-fed and it really wasn't what they thought it would be. And But he's still very prominent today. Um, eatwellness.org, I think is what John goes by today. Uh, but he was truly a pioneer and I was able to visit with him and watch him. I'm a grain-fed beef kind of a guy, but I recognize that I'm not everybody. And so you need to make these options available back to your original point. Typically, it takes longer because you don't have the energy supply to get the uh, beef animal finished on grass as opposed to corn finished or grain finished. But with the, the tenderness aspect, and this is why I think the, the Piedmontese cattle are really in higher demand is because the tenderness is already there. and even though they may be just a tick older, you still get a good eating experience for that grass fed phase.
0: Yeah, that's where our, our neighbor, our, who's experimenting with this, that's his point is that, you know, typical, you know, 24, 30 month uh, grass fed animal, it's hard to make that tender. Uh, but with right. a higher, higher powered form of grass feeding, he believes he can get that down to 16 to 18 months. And, and produce a better product
1: it's, it's all about energy if you can find an energy source in that grass so, and and the interesting part of this whole discussion jim and i love getting into with people in the bigger philosoph- philosophical question is corn that generates number two yellow corn that we feed the cattle and grain feeding is grass yeah it's a. It, it's just that farmers have found a way to really emphasize breeding and selection of this corn make that very productive and it supplies energy to these cattle that works extremely well. And so yeah, that's why I'm never negative to one side or the other. I just say, here are the options. Here's what we do. You as a U.S. consumer should have the freedom to choose.
0: And, of course, the land use issue always comes up. Uh, you use much less land with grass-fed grass because uh, corn is so amazingly efficient. It uses so-called C4 photosynthesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is more efficient uh, than that which is in most plants. And uh, in terms of extracting solar energy and turning it into chemical energy, uh, good old corn is hard to beat. Uh, and yeah. and so if, if you go with straight grass-fed, you're talking five times as much land use probably.
1: Right, exactly. Have you seen the map of the uh, radiant corn crop from the summer growing season? It's like a a satellite map of the US and it just looks like the center part of the US is on fire. Well, we don't talk about this enough, but the g- corn as you just described, it's fed from CO2 and what other people call as toxic pollutants in the atmosphere. And the corn crop in the United States alone generates more oxygen and absorbs 8 times more CO2 than the Amazon rainforest. And nobody wants to talk about that. We all want to talk sentimentally about keeping the Amazon rainforest, which I'm not in favor of destroying, but I want to give corn and the U.S. farmer its rightful place in contributing to that cycle of life. And and what better day to talk about carbon and greenhouse gases than today with the greenhouse gases spewing from the White House? (laughs) <laughs>
0: certainly hot air for damn sure. <laughs> Although I don't know. I have to think about that. I mean, is corn, uh, a force, a form of sequestration of, uh, carbon? Uh, I believe it's a temporary store because it gets recycled. Right. And so it's not Correct. really,
1: it utilizes the carbon. It doesn't necessarily store the carbon in the soil, but it utilizes that carbon and produces oxygen. Yeah.
0: And, and it certainly does that. Uh, you know, while people like Joel Salatin, uh, argue and provide some evidence for the fact that their methods of pure grass-fed uh and intermixing chickens in with eating the manure and all this stuff uh, actually does sequester a growing amount of carbon in the soil and so uh, they would argue that their animals uh are actually carbon negative as opposed to uh you know uh, carbon producing because on the flip side corn is uh you know commercial corn you know 200 bushel of, uh, an acre corn uh, which is an amazing number to me. When I was a kid, 100 bushels an acre was considered a nice crop. It right. uh, does have a tremendous amount of energetic inputs. Uh, fertilizer is a non-trivial, uh, to create particularly uh, nitrogen fertilizer, it takes a lot of energy. Uh, uh, just the uh, the tractors and the harvesting and, and such uh, produce a lot of energy. So on a net basis, corn-fed cattle are uh, – Uh, much bigger greenhouse net greenhouse gas producers than grass fed. On the other hand, they do it in about a fifth of land. So, uh, you know, everything's a trade off. There is no, that's, you know, that's one thing that really bugs me about a lot of this, uh, Uh, stuff Mm -hmm. is that people get fixated on one dimension, right? They don't realize that every serious problem that we have is a multidimensional problem, just the way we were talking about breeding, right? You don't just breed for one thing. If you do, you're out of business. Uh, You know, managing our society as we evolve forward is a multidimensional problem. Uh, Yes, we should be reducing our net CO2 consumption because it's a real thing. I can explain it in terms of seventh grade uh, physics and chemistry. Uh, On the other hand, uh, you know, a large part of the world is on the verge of always on the verge of starvation. And as you point out, this just in time, hyper efficient, but not very robust agriculture system we have, if it's disrupted, uh, uh, could kill hundreds of millions of people. So, uh, you know, and, and has and has and will and yeah. will. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just, we've just been lucky. So frankly, we're lucky COVID hit humans and didn't hit, uh, uh, you know, uh, wheat or something like that. We're, you know, you know we're not that far from uh, a roll of the dice on a, you know, a baseline plant uh, epidemic that uh, puts a serious hurtin' on uh, on the human race.
1: We have plenty of those diseases in crop production that are an issue as well. And in 1984, I was a high school graduate deciding that I wanted to be a farmer the rest of my life and not go to college. Uh, not that you can't go to college and be a farmer, but I just decided not wait four years. Uh, I had a coronavirus hit me that nearly knocked me out of the pig business as a 17-year-old kid. So I learned it up close and personal. We called that TGE. I wanted to just say one other thing about Joel and his model You know, I support that all farmers should have the ability to utilize and and see how their resources fit into the bigger picture. And I don't think that we should have government intervention telling us this is the way you should do it. Market demand should take care of that. And Joel and I have had this discussion when he was on my radio program is that, you know, his system, it works, but it is very labor dependent. And in today's world, that's our limiting factor. And so that's, that's the way that the reason that I, I really struggle with that taking off widespread. If you can handle the labor aspect, it's a wonderful opportu- opportunity, but man, it's labor intensive.
0: At least so far. And one might be imagine, able to imagine uh, robots doing that in the future, which would be interesting.
1: It's happening now. There, there are people doing that now, but you know, from a rotational and c- continuing to build that, it's all about soil health. And no matter what we do, whether we're grass feeding cattle or we're raising wheat in Kansas, how are you building soil health? And if you're not improving the health of the soil and putting more organic matter in with each and every year, you need to evaluate what's going on. And it's not my place to tell you that, but you're going to have to learn that or you're not going to be around.
0: Yep. And here, here, I, you know, I believe that that is one of the fundamental things that the human race has somehow lost track of. I like to point out uh, that, uh, you know, what we remembered in our uh, fifth grade history books is the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East is now a nasty desert, mostly. Uh, right. They did not take care of their topsoil. Uh, they overplowed it too deeply. They over irrigated it. Uh, it got sa- uh, saline, you know, very much like the Central Valley of California is at risk at uh, and this is where you know pure market capitalism may have a problem, right? Uh, in late stage debt-based financialized late stage capitalism, everything is about very short-term money on money return. An awful lot of farmers, particularly crop farmers, are right at the edge of bankruptcy uh, because of the huge debt loads they have to take on, and so they have to uh, you know exploit the hell out of their uh, topsoil. Uh, uh, to, frankly, pay the banker. And if we don't figure out a way to treat our topsoil with the long-term vision that late-stage financialized capitalism uh, does not know how to do, uh, we're, we could end up like uh, what they used to be Fertile Crescent that is now literally abandoned uh, lands all across uh, the core of what was the original breadbasket of the world.
1: hmm I I do want to give a uh, just lay this out there that while I agree that we have to continue to focus on soil health and we need to get better, from 1930 to 1937, the Great Plains of America had what we call the Dust Bowl for lack of precipitation. Not many people know that from 2000 to 2007, the Great Plains of America had less rain. Than we did during the Dust Bowl, and we did not relive the Dust Bowl during that period of time. In fact, we produce more food each and every year from the Great Plains because we had the soil health. But we can never lose sight of that, and we cannot let up our our foot off the gas pedal at all to do whatever we can to maximize the amount of soil health possible. Uh, we're 100 percent agreement
0: there. Uh, and certainly, the the growth of no till has been a big a uh, big factor. Absolutely. In, uh, in, especially in the United States, you know, you know United States is uh, chaotic at times, but uh, we're also innovative and uh, we do more no-till than the rest of the world put together, at least last time I checked. And uh, uh, no-till done right. Uh, and people can argue about what's the right way to do no-till uh, is, uh, I think, a really major uh, innovation.
1: And, and bringing the livestock back, you know, in, in my country where I grew up, and, and this is one reason why I saw the, the West, Nebraska is a better place, was we've removed all of the fences in farm and farm country, can't call it farm and ranch country anymore, east of the Mississippi. And animals are so vital to recharging that soil health, eating the crops off, and then pooping on the crop and putting that nitrogen with the most available source back into the soil. Animals are the key to soil health, and that's why this negative stigma going right now about removing animals from the cycle of life is dangerous to mankind and the planet.
0: Yeah, here where we are, uh, it's much more animal oriented than crop oriented because you know we're relatively sure. low quality soils in the mountains or in the foothills or in the river valleys. Yeah, we grow some corn, we grow some uh, sorghum, we grow some sudex, which is a forage crop that we grow occasionally. Uh, but most of the land is in uh, is in uh, uh, Pasture, and we have some amazing pastures over in our Bluegrass Valley. The uh, uh, it's a limestone region, and the uh, the grasses there are just amazingly powerful. In fact, in the olden days, people used to ship their cattle from uh, elsewhere to fatten them up in the summer on our uh, Bluegrass uh, uh, Bluegrass Valley grass. And uh, uh, and yeah, if you if you
1: abandon your pastures, they they turn ugly in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, when they weren't walking their turkeys to market. <laughs> that one still hits me pretty good. I, that story, I love. I'd love to visit with somebody who walked their turkeys to market.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, old Jim Pullen, Pullen, uh went on to the next cycle about five or six years ago. In his yeah. early nineties, a heck of a guy, right? One of those kind of maybe he's five foot three, five foot four, little bandy guy. But even in his at ninety, you know, big shoulders on him, big arms, right? Holy moly, right? <laughs> what was uh, that dude like? What was that dude like when he was twenty five?
1: Last week, Jim, I, I was in uh, Stillwater, Oklahoma, and I interviewed Albert Rutledge. He was born in 1924, and his first job was during the that Dust Bowl era in Oklahoma, and he was paid a dollar a week to keep cattle st- uh, in a bunch grazing road ditches because there was nothing in the pastures to eat.
0: Mm.
1: But he, he, it's just a phenomenal conversation, and what an inspiration to visit with. P- anybody who lived through that era, I, I just don't think any of us spent enough time visiting with people, what it was really like. Yeah, we were lucky that we got here uh, to where we are today early enough to
0: catch some of those old time folks. right? People who did yeah. uh, uh, mule and horse done, drawn uh, logging, for instance, one of our uh, wonderful old time uh, friends again would have been a hundred by now and passed on a few years ago. Uh, Remembered as a child doing, uh, you know, horse and mule uh, uh, logging up in the mountains. Right. And uh, uh, he also had an amazing life. He born and died on the family home place, uh, but in between fought world war II and has a picture of himself in the window of Hitler's uh, Eagle's lair in Birch's garden
1: and, oh, wow.
0: uh, it fought across Europe and you know a zillion battles wow. and uh, you know ended up there and came back to the family farm and continued to farm and so uh, you know these people are gems and if you still have some around you uh, you know take advantage of them they just you know because you know again they remember the days when uh, stuff was done by horse you know and uh, you know where we are our our place where we live did not have electricity till 1962. Uh, you know, it was one of the very last places uh, that was serviced by rural electrification. And so again, you know, people can tell you plenty of stories about what did you do when you didn't have electricity?
1: It was 1963 that we first had more tractors on U.S. farms than horses and mules. That wasn't that long ago. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. And talk about going to college. 1965 was
0: the first year that 50% of American adults had a high school education. Uh, and somehow we survived. How about that? Right?
1: Yeah, amazing. How about that?
0: Yeah, my dad dropped out of high school after ninth grade, and he was a extremely competent and good man. And uh, I would frankly put him heads up against uh, yeah. you know, plenty of college grads I've known in my day. And I think he'd, uh, he'd take him in many different fields of endeavor.
1: Well, he got his education from the real world and hard knocks, and there'll never be a better education than that.
0: Yeah, probably, uh, yeah. Three invasions in the South Pacific in World War II, 20 years as a Washington, D.C. cop. I suspect you'll learn a thing or two.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
0: All righty. Well, I think we're about up here on our time. Uh, any final thoughts?
1: Well, you know, we didn't get to talk about my uh, draft horses. I love t- uh, driving a team and raking hay just to kind of remind myself of where it was. But I just wanted to share with folks the way I close my radio program every day and it it came to me because I was interviewing another guy, 82 years old, Moses Del Barney from Idaho. And he is just a tremendous draft horse uh, teamster. And I said, Moses, what's the key to success and teaching draft horses to work? He said, it's the same as working with people. Be gentle, stay firm. And so I try to live by that because I think it's exactly what we should do, Jim.
0: I love it. Well, thank you, Trent Luce, for a really interesting conversation. And uh, you know, look forward to doing it again in
1: the future. I look forward to stopping by and seeing you in that wonderful Green Valley. Yeah, you come, out, come down this way. Uh, look us up. I will do that indeed.
0: Might put you to work too. <laughs> <laughs> Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at ModernSpaceMusic.com.